The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Nick Nanavati. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I am your host, Nick Nanavati, and this week we are joined by a very, very special guest today, Matt Laura. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Just finished recovering from all the jet lag. Yeah, all that jet lag from traveling to the Las Vegas Open, which you took down single-handedly in the most stylish fashion I have ever seen with a monolith. That is what we're here to talk about, folks. Matt Laura is the winner of LVO, and he did it with a monolith. I mean, what more needs to be said? Congratulations, Matt. Thank you. It's uh, one of my favorite models from the Necron range, and it finally being usable is great news. A little more than usable. It seems like you are using it to completely destroy people, but we're going to get into all that. This is part one of a two-part show, folks. So in part one, we're going to talk about Matt. We're going to get to know him as a person, as a player, what his play style is, what learning the new Necron Codex in just a matter of months has been like, that journey not playing 18 rates. You know, there's kudos, bonus points for that. And uh, basically, we're going to talk about this list. We're going to talk about what he took to LVO and in broad strokes how it works. Then in part two, that's where we're going to get into the nitty-gritty, the good stuff. That's for our patrons on AOW40K.com. If you subscribe, you get access to this part too, along with 200 plus other episodes and our Discord server. And in that episode, we're going to talk about Matt's actual games at LVO, how he positioned his models, how he moved them, what he was looking for. His army teleports all over the place. So there's so many things to consider, and Matt is going to break it all down for us. So Matt, I want to know, how did you get into Warhammer? How did I get into Warhammer? So my dad and uncle... Uh, started way back in 3rd edition with the Black Templar Dark Eldar starter set. And I was just a wee little lad at that point in time. But I would sit there every single weekend and just stare at the table and watch them play. Um, My dad would take me with him to Warhammer on the weekends when they would go up, and I would just sit there and absorb it and just sit there and stare at them. And uh, one time he was playing a game with somebody and his opponent went to do something. And I was like, he can't do that. Now, keep in mind, I was five years old saying my uh, my dad's opponent couldn't do something. And uh, sure enough, I was right. So later that day after my dad's game, he took me over to the wall and let me pick up my first box of models. And we started very, very simple with very core basic rules and worked our way up and i started playing seriously in fourth that is so cool i've never heard like a five-year-old really calling someone out on rules that's like unheard of you've a really natural talent there and then i love that story of you connecting with your dad through the hobby and getting your first box like that together that's very warming so did you guys start playing the hobby together like he's really who taught you how to play oh uh, yeah um my dad and uncle taught me how to play the game and then it's kind of done a complete uh flip on it where now they barely play and i have to teach them all the rules yeah isn't that life so basically your dad and uncle taught you how to play and then at some point you decided to go competitive with it what was that like that transition uh so i used to play competitive warhammer fantasy um before the end times happened that was my first foray into competitive play and then when that all happened with the end times and Age of Sigmar, I didn't really have a game to play competitively anymore, so I switched to 40k. And um, it kind of all just snowballed from there. I would go to small local tournaments. I would do really well in them. 
And then once a year, I would make the trip down the Nova, and I, I would do okay. I'd place in the top half every single time, but I never really took it too serious. And then right around, like right before COVID, I decided to like actually take tournament play somewhat serious and like dedicate a good bit of time to it. And that's actually when I met you for the first time up at the local tables and towers shop that I play at. And you told me that I had to keep going. That's true. I remember that game. You and I, I didn't realize it had such an impact on you. That's amazing. But yeah, we played in the finals of, uh, I guess for you, a local GT, I flew out to see some friends and played in it. And it was like, I know it's 60 people. And we played in the final round after you beat Sean, which was super impressive. And at this point, I had never heard of you, right? I was like, who's Matt Lord? Is this guy who's beating Sean? You know, what is that? And we, you nearly beat me. That was a hell of a game, for real. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely the moment where I was like, all right, maybe this tournament thing is uh, something I need to, to continue trying to do. So how did you get so good? Like, beating Sean Naden in your, one of your first, like, GTs is kind of insane. Like giving me a great game after that is is equally as insane, more or less. So, you know, you go from playing locally to playing against world class players and giving them a run for their money, beating them. What is that? Doesn't just happen, Matt. How did you get better? Um, I pretty much spend all of my free time doing Warhammer stuff. I don't really do a whole lot else. Uh, I have some medical problems that make it kind of hard to like be an active person. So I'm not one that's like walking around and jogging and doing hikes and stuff. So I'm kind of just stuck in the house a lot. So you end up doing a lot of math, a lot of math. And, Interesting. Um, so you guys approach years, the game kind of more analytical like that? Yeah. I, I go from things from a very mathematical stand view and I um, spent pretty much a decade beating up on all my friends in Warhammer. And, uh, they're always kind of like, hey, you should go to bigger tournaments and not just beat up on us. And, well, here we are. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was your first kind of breakout tournament uh, where you're playing against really quality, well-known players that are out there. And that was Tables and Towers in 2021, I want to say. Maybe 2020? Uh, I think it was 2020, but Might close, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So beyond that, how did you... Like, what was your 40K history from that tournament to winning LVO just now? Um, well, I started through going through and really focusing on trying to hone in, like, the more competitive side of Warhammer. Because there is some differences between, like, the mid-the-top tables and the top-top tables. And getting that final, like, hurdle was a little harder. But once I like figured it out and got through everything, uh, my first trip to Atlantic City, I placed in the top 16, I think. And then that's my first LVO, yeah. I got second place. In that same year, that's right. So you played me at Tables and Towers in like April or March or something like that. And then LVO rolls around January, nine, ten months later. And you literally played in the finals versus Richard Ziegler. Yep. That's such a trajectory. So what is your capacity to actually analyze the game and get better? Because obviously you spend a ton of time doing Warhammer, and that's awesome. But you know, doing just spending time on something isn't inherently going to make you that much better at it. It'll slowly grind you better at it. You're doing something at a very accelerated pace. So it's like the way you're analyzing the game is obviously 
better than the way other people analyze the game for self-improvement. So when you try to get better and you're playing against players that are worse than you, it's hard to kind of excel like that. So what's your methodology there? Um, I'm really good at playing a reactionary style game. Um, most of my lists that you'll see me write are not like full-blown aggressive armies. I really like playing the reactionary long-term style army. I like playing for turn five. I like playing the long grindy games that uh, is all about trading resources. And I find myself really good on the back foot because uh, I'm really good at like finding what is my win path? How do I win this game? What do I need to do between turn three and turn five to secure the win and go at it from that point of view? So that's a, I share a very similar play style to that very reactive, you know, trying to play the back half of the game. Um, with that in mind, 10th edition more so than most is a very front-loaded edition. More than ever, you're seeing games decide to turn two, turn three, and if not because of tabling, because of points disparity and things like that. How have you found adjusting your play style to this more aggressive-based edition? Um, it took a little bit of getting used to going from ninth where it was very late game focused to 10th. Uh, but I found that I can still write lists fairly effective for the late game. Like my hyperphase list that uh, I took to LVO, uh, the list very much can just hide for the first two turns of the game and secure win late fairly regularly. Um, there was several games that I played that I was behind like 20 something points and all of a sudden came out of nowhere with a win towards the end. That's awesome. So we'll definitely impact that more as we get deeper into this episode. But I want to bring us back to the previous question. With your reactive style, how do you analyze your games in post and, and try to, you know, especially if you found a winning path, how do you find a better winning path and help continuously improve yourself? Um, I pretty much spend 20 minutes after a loss just replaying the game in my head over and over again, trying to think, did I make a mistake? Was this a loss because of a, a matchup? Like, was it like, oh, this is a really bad matchup for my army. I need to go back and adjust my list so that this matchup isn't as bad. Is it something where I made a mistake and threw away too many resources too early? Was this something where... I need to play more aggressive or something like that. And I just sit there and try to break it down after every loss. And hopefully there isn't too many of those and I've corrected enough. Yeah. I mean, that's a great method for just generally reflective self-improvement, like replaying the games in your head. I do it myself. It's, it's awesome. And like really getting into the nitty gritty, analyzing the losses, things like that. So let's talk about more of the immediate journey, right? So Necrons come out in like November. And LVO is in January. And obviously there's holidays and things like that that can always get in the way. So that's not much time to pick up a faction and learn it and take it to a, a tournament like LVO and win it. So how did you pull that off? Um, I've been playing Necron since 5th edition, off and on. Um, and when 10th edition started, I did my very first event with Chaos Knights. Uh, just to kind of like learn the rules of 10th edition and get a handle on things, because it wasn't a lot of models. I could very easily like get things going. And then after that event, I was like, cool, I'm going to pick one army, and that's going to be the army I play all the way till LVO. 
and I'm going to try to refine it as much as possible. And I had chosen Necrons, and I played the index version of Necrons, um, I think, one month before Nova, all the way till now. Um, and I was playing the Lich Guard and the Transcendent Satan, and then once the Codex came out, uh, I saw everybody was on the the Wraith and Canoptic Court plan, but um, as an Eldar player at heart, I saw the Hypercrypt and knew I had to try it. And once I tried it, I was hooked. Nice. So yeah, basically, it, it kind of worked out for you that they got a really powerful Codex just months before LVO, but you were committed. I remember seeing you at Nova and a couple other events taking your Necrons and, and doing pretty well with them. So what was that journey like when obviously pre-Codex you were just sitting in a sea of Eldar and CSM just you know trying to get wins out here? Um, were those skills that you learned in those tough times transferable to the new codex? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it was really nice, like pushing Lichguard to the center of the table and seeing what happens a lot of the games. Uh, just Lichguard were one of my favorite units back in fifth edition when they came out. So being able to finally take the Lichguard and in the index felt good. Uh, but a lot of armies haven't changed too much. For example, Eldar, like they had a Wraith Knight, but now they don't. And the rest of the list is kind of the same. So being able to get practice in against an army that's not changing, CSM hasn't really changed, uh, orc lists haven't changed too much. So all the other lists pretty much have stayed the same over the months, but my list was the one that got the change to beat them. Is kind right. of how it and felt. That actually kind of puts an advantage on your side to a degree because everyone else has to go out and add new necrons to their practice repertoire, and if they don't, that's just you know big disadvantage. And especially quality new Necrons, you know, the quality of a player on a new faction is always kind of in question. Whereas, like, you have all that experience going into the field already, and now you can just grind on this army and refine the codex and kind of pick an army that works for you. So, obviously, when Necrons dropped, Canoptic Wraiths and the Canoptic Court was all the talk and the Broken Immortals and this and that. So, you're on a totally different page. You're, on, you're playing Hyperphase, which is also very good, right? It teleports and it moves around. We'll get into its nitty-gritty details, but it's cool. Why not go for the obvious Wraith build? Um, I just thought it was really boring, to be honest. Uh, just kind of shoving... No, that's that's truth. <laughs> <laughs> just, just shoving Wraiths across the table and hoping your opponent doesn't kill them. Uh, I had already played a couple months of shoving Lichgard to the center of the table and hoping my opponent didn't play him. So when the book came out and gave me one very static way of playing and one very dynamic way of playing. After already playing Necrons very statically for a while, I was very excited to play the dynamic version. And um, uh, my friends in the local area got to sit here and listen to me go on and on about like this hyperphase list that I had theorized about like immortals teleporting through monoliths and all that fun jazz. And they're kind of just like, look, that's so many moving parts. I don't quite know what you're saying, but I believe in you. Just try it. And that worked, I mean, clearly. So, I mean, that's really what we're here to talk about. Matt, could you walk us through kind of line by line what the army list you took to LVO was? Yeah, so um, it is a Hypercrypt Legion detachment with Imhotek the Stormlord as the Warlord. Um, I then had two Satan, one being the Nightbringer, one being the Void Dragon. I had a Luminar Zerus. Two Chronomancers with some enhancements, a Plasmanter with some enhancements, three Bricks of Immortals, two Scarab Swarms, a Deathmark Squad, three individual Locust Destroyers, and a Monolith. 
Nice. So we're going to get into the details of what exactly this does, mm-hmm. but in, it's got a lot of moving parts. It's got so much going on. Like, I don't even know where to begin with it, but why don't you just break down the, the strategy to this army? Like, how does it generally play and what's your design philosophy here? Yeah. So in with the army, the Satan kind of like hold hands and go to the center of the table. Um, I'm not really trying to fight for the whole midboard, uh, but two Satan can pretty well fight for one midboard objective against almost any army. So those two Satan are pretty much running up to one of the midfield objectives and kind of just holding it all game. And if they just sit there and hold it all game, I am perfectly okay with that. Um, Illuminator Zeris with his loan up uh, is really good at holding a home field objective against a shooting army. Um, and then the Immortals and the Monolith are actually the key parts of the army. The Monolith and Immortals are all teleporting around and picking apart my opponent's objective playing pieces as much as possible, while the rest of the O-list is going around scoring secondaries. With the Hyperphase being able to jump around, they can score almost any secondary immediately. It is wild how fast you can score. So the Hyperphase Detachment Rule is basically you get to, at the end of your opponent's turn, pick any three of your units that are not engaged and then put them back into reserve. And then most of your units have Deep Strike, so they can just come in pretty much wherever they want in the next turn. It's very similar to Grey Knights. Is that the idea? Uh, sort of. Actually, not as, not a lot of units have Deep Strike in the list. Only one Immortal Squad, the Deathmarks, and the Monolith have Deep Strike. Everything else has to come in from Strat Reserve. Um, so then how are you maneuvering all your pieces together effectively? So that is where the Chronomancers and the Monolith come into play. So the Chronomancers, after their unit shoots, gets to move five inches. So even if they do walk in from an edge, they get to come in wholly within six of an edge and then move another five. And the Monolith can teleport a immortal unit to them at the end of the movement phase, wholly within six and outside of engagement range. So... I got all these moving parts where the Immortals, I can have almost my entire army on the other side of the table in any given turn. That is pretty insane. So basically, you have two units of Immortals with Chronomancers that are going to come in from Strategic Reserve, they're going to shoot something, and then they're going to move five inches again. So basically get 11 inches on either side of the table. Then you have the ability to use your monolith and teleport that somewhere and then bring immortals through that monolith portal even closer to the enemy yep. and then do you have any stratagem support for this as well yeah so i have um the three inch away i think it's called cosmic precision so i can have any unit that is in hyperphase or deep strike come in three inches away from enemies and then i can combine that with the monolith portal i can combine it with the chronomancer's scooting ability so i can deep strike five away or three away with a Chronomancer unit, because one of the Chronomancer units had Deep Strike. Um, and then move five inches after. It's very, very hard to screen me out. Um, pretty much in every single game, I was able to get in my opponent's backfield if I wanted to. Yeah, that sounds absolutely insane kind of mobility. Like, three-inch away Deep Strike is super powerful in and of itself. Then you're moving five inches afterwards, so there is no stopping you from contesting an objective unless you, like, fully block it out. But you can shoot them first, so you, like, you clear space. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah. The the kind of tricks you can pull with this is kind of overwhelming. What are some of your go-to playbook moves with this army, if you will? So I can have the Monolith uh, Deep Strike 3 by 
get an immortal unit out, wholly within six and an inch away from enemies, and then shoot and move five. So I can get on an objective whenever I want, pretty much. <laughs> um, I got capture enemy outposts most games at LVO, and I was able to get capture enemy outpost almost every single game I drew it on the turn I drew it. Most notably, like in the finals, I drew capture enemy outpost turn one and I got capture enemy outpost turn one. <laughs> like yeah, you can usually go that's in. terrible, right? Like that, that's yeah. absolutely insane kind of mobility. So the the only thing I'm thinking could stop this, right, is Lamanloth is pretty enormous in and of itself. So you could make that even with three inch away not that effective to place if you're playing a numerous enough army has anyone tried that kind of tactic against you uh you can absolutely try it it doesn't work as well as you would think because i can always just have the monolith come in nine away and then have a unit come in within six of the monolith and then that unit's sort of coming in three away and then have a different unit come in three away so i can almost have like two units always coming in three away and the um, monolith has towering, so all it has to do is deep strike touching a terrain piece, and with how large it is, it can usually shoot through it. So it's really hard to stop the monolith from doing just whatever it wants, whenever it wants. That is absolutely crazy. I, yeah, I didn't consider combining the strats in different combinations to get two units showing up so close, and the monolith being towering is a whole different dimension, just tagging terrain and seeing right through it like it's ninth edition. It's nuts. So talk to me about how the, the what the firepower is coming out of these things. Like, what does a monolith even shoot? And how much output is coming from these immortals? Yeah, so a lot of people, uh, when I told them what the monolith shot, they just kind of looked at me and they're like, well, it does what now? Um, so a monolith has two guns. It has a particle, which is 24-inch range, 3d6 shots, hitting on threes at strength eight, minus one damage two, blast and dev wounds. It's pretty good at clearing out like your cheaper infantry, and it'll chunk off a couple wounds from a vehicle. But the Death Rays are the main event, in my opinion. They are 24-inch range, one shot each, uh, hitting on a 3 at strength, 12, minus 4, damage D6 plus 1. It has four of them, so it's going to have four shots, and it's got sustained hits D3. It was not uncommon for me to get six or seven hits with a Death Ray. Oh my god, yeah, that's six or seven hits on strength 12, AP4, D6 plus 1 is... is... Yeah, it, it just it picks up stuff. It's hilarious. And the yeah, funny can, part about the monolith is it's good in combat too, and nobody remembers it. Monolith's good in combat. What what does this thing do in combat? It's got six attacks that hit on twos at strength eight minus two damage three. That's like a demon prince. What is this thing? <laughs> it sucks you through the portal. It sucks you through the portal. That's so cool. I mean, in a terrible way. So, okay, the monolith is some nice anti-tank shots, which I imagine this army really needs, because aside yes. from that, mortals aren't doing it. Your Satan are good at it, um, for sure. But they're only in so many places at once, and they're mostly combat-oriented. So I like that you can basically take an anti-tank piece and just put it somewhere and just shoot a tank and pretty much pick it up. That's really nice. Yeah, it, it's pretty hard to hide from a monolith, especially with the three-inch deep strike thing. I... I don't think there was a turn where the monolith wasn't shooting something that I wanted it shooting in any game. So what's the defense on this thing? How tough are we talking? Uh, it is toughness 13 with 22 wounds and a 2-up save, and I can spend 1 CP with Hypercrypt to give it a 4-pin vulnerable save. Ooh, that is not easy <laughs> yeah. to kill. It's yeah. really funny when you look at your opponents and you're like, yeah, your Bright Lances and Lias Cannons wound on 5s. 
and that's horrible. If you're not like packing lethal <laughs> hits like CSM, it's just not going to go down. Yeah, it's it's not uncommon for it just to be alive at the end of the game. Well, I watched your final game where it lived through Wraith Guard shooting it, Fugan shooting it, and Incarn charging it. So I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so let's talk about the Immortals. What kind of output are they putting into this army? So the Immortals put out way more output than people give them any credit for. A lot of people go, oh, he has Immortals. They're not um, Canoptic Court Immortals, and they don't have Devastating Wounds, so they don't do anything. The Immortals are safe damage. Because of the 5-inch um, move after shooting, my Immortals are shooting almost every turn of the game unless I'm throwing them away for a big point swing. Uh, so they may only get like 100 points of kills when they shoot, but they're going to do that four or five times throughout the game. So uh, I have 20 Immortals with Goss and Chronomancers. They will be putting out 20 shots at strength 5, minus 1, damage 1, and they get four rerolls to wound against people on objectives. And if they're near uh, Illuminar Zeris, they'll be AP 2. So with lethal hits from being Goss, they pick up most infantry in the game, and with the lethal hits and rerolling wounds, they'll even put a handful of wounds on vehicles. Uh, I had a... Um, uh, a Chaos Knight matchup against Armagers uh, the weekend before LVO at the UTC finals. And I was just casually having Immortals put four or five wounds on Armagers every time they shot. Um, and then I have one unit with Tesla, and they have the Plasmancer. Uh, the Plasmancer gives them critical hits on fives, which means that their sustained hits two procs on a five up. And he has a Risen Tyrant, so whenever they're picked up and put down, that turn, they'll have full rerolls to hit, so you can fish for the five ups. It was not uncommon for the Tesla unit to get about forty hits. That's pretty insane, and I love the consistent firepower of just fire and fading those units like they're playing Eldar to get some longevity out of them. And then if you need to turn up the heat, just forty hits the Tesla unit into somebody, and really just if they don't have two up armor, they're going to feel it. Oh yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the Tesla unit I would comfortably put into a Marine unit and be like, oh, they're probably going to lose about six to seven Marines. Yeah, no, for real. If, I mean, 30 saves is 10 wounds. That's a lot of dead Marines. Yep, and then you also got the Plasmancer who has like three shots at strength seven minus three damage two and the mortal wound thing that he does. He kills an extra like two, three Marines usually. Right. So your mortals are kind of just pieces to help you go from mission play. And you kind of mentioned that earlier. They're basically units that can go wherever they want, whenever they want, and they can beat up other troop units pretty well. Like, you know, yeah. Space Marine troops and, and anything below that is is basically getting eviscerated by quantity of shots. So when you send Immortals, like, on an aggressive attack to your opponent's side, maybe capture enemy outpost, of course, but just, like, an objective contest, you know, are, are you expecting them all to die after that? Uh, not necessarily, depending on how ham I went. Um, I have a stratagem for 2 CP, where if you attack an infantry unit, I can immediately teleport them after you're done resolving your attack, as long as you kill the guy, to the monolith. So, as an example, uh, this happened in one of my games. I teleport the monolith on your flank and shoot and blow up a tank. I then teleport with the 3-inch away, teleport uh, my immortal unit with Goss. 
a chronomancer move onto your objective to get capture enemy outposts. You respond by moving a unit to shoot them and another unit to charge them. The first unit shoots me, kills three guys. I then go, cool, I'm going to spend two CP, pick them up immediately, and put them all the way over by the monolith safe behind a building. And then they get to teleport next turn for free. Right, that's a, that's a pretty big uh, problem. You know, you can't really set up in the traditional sense. Um, do you find that it's easy for people to kind of feel gotcha by this? Or are you like very upfront in explaining that there's so many tricks and reminding your opponent about yes. that stuff? I, I tell my opponents in depth what my army does at the start of the game several times. I go over my stratagems, how they work, how they interact with each other. I go over the chronomancers scooting and how I can chain the teleports with the scooting and everything I, I i pretty much tell them like if i get a like if i need to capture a specific objective marker on the table i can do it almost at any given time yeah right so when you're going through it and all that you're playing your games you're satan talk to me about them you said they, they kind of wander off to an objective and just hold it is that like a specific center objective or like a, a normal natural expansion objective the further objective so Normally, I try to have it be the objective marker closest to the center, um, unless the matchup says that's a really bad idea, and then they go for one of the side ones. Um, but most of my stuff comes in from strat reserve, so it wants to be coming in from the sides. So my immortals and stuff like coming in on the edges. Uh, so the objectives in the center, it's a little bit harder for me to get to, unless I'm using like the monolith, the deep strike on it. So a lot of the times, the Satan, that's kind of their job, is to sit as like bouncers in the middle of the table and try to keep my opponent from just free-farming points all game. That makes a lot of sense. So you have a lot of moving parts with this army, of course, and then there's things like the solo heavy destroyers, which are, I'm assuming are just mission play tools? Uh, they're, they're actually just the locust destroyers, not the heavy destroyers, but yes, they are um, just little mission pieces. They're 30 points. They have a okay gun that can scare a intercessor, but outside of that, it's not really doing much. Right, but they deep strike and they're models, and they have OC and do action. They actually don't deep strike. They they don't they're deep strike. They're really coming in from the strike. edges. No. Nope. Wow. Okay. There you go. But so, uh, turns out, just coming in from an edge is good enough a lot of the time. That's true. I mean. Especially in LVO format, when there's you know fewer places to hide, it's harder to just have the whole board screened out while being out on the site. Especially from an army as mobile as yours, so you're just killing screens, and it gets harder and harder as the game goes on. It's really nice. I, I really like the approach with the army here. I think it's really cool. Thank you. It was so, a, a labor of love. This list, the labor of love. No, I can I can tell. It's actually right up my alley. I'm kind of jealous listening to you explain it, but that's what we're here. We're gonna hear it. Learn more about it. So there's so many units to be picked up every turn, um, but you can only do three. How do you decide what goes up into reserve every turn? So I actually can do four. I have the um, dimensional overseer enhancement on one of the chronomancers, which as long as he's alive, he can be in reserve or wherever. He just has to be alive. I can pick up four units a turn. Uh, the monolith is almost always being picked up if it can be. Um, just having the extra maneuverability and the threat of the monolith being able to be literally anywhere is a very important thing. Um, outside of that, I'm picking up usually two of the immortal squads, and then either the death marks or a uh, destroyer as the fourth. And the um, 
the reason why I only need to pick up two immortal squads is one gets to then walk out of the monolith. So I'm kind of picking up five units a turn if you think about it. That's pretty insane. Um, is there like a flow chart? Is five units turn turn basically everything? I mean, uh, turn if I go second and on turn one, the units I pick up are the immortal unit with deep strike, the death marks, and the monolith because those are the only things with deep strike and therefore the only things that can come in turn one. Uh, from there, it's all about trying to get the immortals into positions. Um, Zerus sometimes teleports around. Zerus is infantry, so then can therefore come out of the monolith, which catches people off guard sometimes. But yeah, it's it's mainly planning your entire turn around the monolith, wherever it goes. Because wherever the monolith goes, you know you have like an anchor. And where the monolith goes, that's also where your units can be teleported to if they're getting injured. So it's you have to be very careful where you place the monolith. Uh, because, like, uh, I think in the game versus the Tyranids in the semifinals, uh, for the people that watched it, I set up the monolith where it stole an objective because it has OC8. Um, and I also had it so the corner of the monolith was within six inches of the other side of a wall, so that when he shot one of my immortal units within uh, a strat reserved exocrine, I immediately, after the first exocrine shot, picked up my immortals and put them to safety. That's pretty nuts. I mean, there's just plays on plays on plays with this army. Well, how on a more strategic level, how do you determine what tempo to take it at? Like, you can take this army super aggressively, put the monolith in deployment zone, turn one, and you know, I've I've watched you do that on stream. <laughs> you also say you take this more reactive approach, play that turn three, turn four, turn five life. What? How do you decide? So, um, it all depends on how fast I think I'm going to hemorrhage resources against uh, armies. Uh, against some armies, they have a very hard time actually killing me and catching me. So I, against those armies, I can just slowly pick them apart and whittle them down as the game goes. And then other armies that are very fast, like Eldar, World Eaters and stuff, I can play a little bit more aggressive and try to kill their key pieces early and do the whole trade style from a, from the get-go. It allows me to have a lot of flexibility with the play style. It's all about looking at the table and going, all right, am I going to win this game if I just draw it out? Or am I going to hemorrhage resources too fast and lose in the late game? And if I think it's the latter, then I go aggressive and try to trade upwards as fast as possible in points or uh, kill points and just hope that I can get a lead early in the game, like I did in the Eldar matchup. Right. Are there certain missions that are more favored or less favored for this army? I mean, it's so reactive and all over the place that it's hard to kind of take um, it for as a normal army. I wouldn't say it has an, any specific awful ones. It doesn't love Scrambler Fields. Um, so uh, Scrambler Fields is one of the mission rules where uh, people can't come in from reserves or infiltrate onto objective markers. Uh, obviously, an army that teleports doesn't love that. But it's not as awful for me as it is for like somebody like Gene Circle, because I can come in just off the objective and then move on to it with my uh, Chronomancer units. So it's actually not that bad. Um, outside of that, there really isn't any awful objectives for the army. Yeah, I can see this army just being a point factory in 
do you find oftentimes that your games are close, but you just have more points than your opponent, or is it really that you're like destroying them through virtue of activations? Um, it depends on the matchup. Uh, there is some matchups where it's very evident that my army just completely destroys them. Uh, for example, like a really well played like custody army is going to have a hard time into mine. Like custodies are not that fast. They don't have a lot of good ranged. So it's really hard for them to interact with my army. I actually had to play custodies round two at LVO and there really just didn't feel like there was anything my opponent could do about the situation. Right. It's, you have to have a certain amount of tools and a certain approach to the game yeah. uh, to be able to play against your list for sure. And that's really what we're going to unpack in part two was kind of like how your games went and what could be challenging for this army. It sounds like it's going to be the, one of the new menaces on the block thanks to you, Matt. So we're going to have to figure out what to do about it. Well, the good news is it's not the easiest army to play. So if it is a menace, people are going to have to learn how to play it or they're going to sink while trying to swim. That's super true. You know, it's got so much depth to it that it is a really skill-intensive army. And while it sounds so powerful and so just put your guys on the objective, capture enemy outpost turn one, like it, it really is not that easy in person, I promise. So hey, kudos to you, Matt, for coming up with such a beautiful army, um, running a model with maximum style points, capturing enemy outpost turn one. I mean, I, I really like it. I think it's very cool. I think you did a great job. Well, thank you. I uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep playing Necrons or if I'm going to swap to a different army. I don't usually end up playing the same army for far too long. I like to keep it fresh and playing different armies, but I'm definitely enjoying Hypercrypt, so I wouldn't be too surprised if I play them for a couple more months. Yeah, we shall see. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. We're going to get into the good stuff, the matchups, the placements, the tactics, and the strategies that Matt employed to win the Las Vegas Open. You can catch that episode on AOW40K.com. That is our Patreon. That is where we have part two of this episode, along with so many others, and our Discord server. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And listeners, we'll catch you later. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.